BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Most of the time when we bring someone onto Weather Geeks, they have a certain niche or special craft or an interesting line of research to discuss. But today's guest, Dr. Adam Sobel, a professor of applied physics and applied mathematics and of earth and environmental sciences at Columbia University, does it all. He teaches everything from tropical meteorology to climate thermodynamics to differential equations. So he's certainly going to teach us weather geeks about something today. Let's talk to Adam Sobel. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Marshall. Thank you for having me. Well, this is great. I mean, uh, you know, to you all, he's Dr. Adam Sobel. I know him as Adam because, you know, we, Adam and I have been colleagues for a while. We've collaborated on a, a National Academy study on extreme weather attribution and climate. Mike Mee, he's been very active now with the American Meteorological Society. Adam, the first question we ask every Weather Geeks guest, no matter who it is, is how'd you get into weather and climate? Uh, is it a story from your past, a specific event. Tell us your story. Yeah. Um, my wife gets the credit for it, actually. I was not a weather geek as a kid. Um, I was kind of a science geek. I was I was into, introduced to science at a very early age, going to the Museum of Natural History and the Planetarium here with my dad as a small child. But And so I was, a, you know, really into to science as a kid. And um, and then uh, in college, I was a double major in music and physics. So I kind of wanted to be a jazz musician for a while. That didn't really happen. But then, but I tried for a couple of years after I, after I graduated college. And I worked as a sound engineer in a, in a um, studio for the ad industry. But anyway, then I, I had sort of a junior midlife crisis where I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I decided to go back to graduate school. And I thought I'd study physics again. And, but having been out in the job market, I had about four years between undergrad and grad school. So I'd been on the job market. I'd had some good jobs and some really bad jobs and I'd been through a recession. And so I was a little more, um, you know, a little more focused on the realities of the world than I had been when I was younger. And I thought, well, I better decide what area of physics I'm going to study because some areas are connected to industry. Some are more theoretical. Some are, you know, it affects what you're going to do. And I was, I was thinking about that. And um, my wife, we weren't married yet. She was my girlfriend at the time, but she was an environmentalist um, from her youth and an environmental science. She was getting a master's at the time, actually, in the forestry school at UC Berkeley. And, and she said, if I had your training, this is about 1992, 91, 92. She said, if I had your training in physics, I would study meteorology and do global warming. And um, I had never really thought about that. And I didn't, you know, I knew what global warming was. I mean, I believed it was a real thing, but didn't seem that exciting to me. And, um, I, you know, at first I didn't, I didn't really take to that suggestion, but the more I started thinking about it, I started reading about it a little bit. And, um, I liked that it had, uh, some real world application. I liked the computer simulation aspect of it. I'd always found fluid dynamics fascinating, even though I never really had studied it properly. They don't really teach it in physics curricula, um, at least at that time they didn't. Um, and then I, um, she actually had an uncle who worked at the FAA and he, in Monterey, California, because we were living in Berkeley at the time, and he knew a bunch of um, 
meteorologists who worked at the Naval Postgraduate School and the, um, what's the lab there, NRL Monterey. And I went and visited those guys and talked to them. So I just, the more I learned about it, the more I kind of got interested in it. And um, honestly, part of my thinking too was that, um, first of all, it was a little less competitive. So I, I got into MIT for grad school in meteorology. I wouldn't have got into physics. And I kind of knew that it was like a little bit easier, honestly. And the other part of it was, you know, at that time, it was not only global warming, but ozone hole was a big deal. And um, of course, weather forecasting was part of the, you know, what the field is relevant to. And I thought, you know, there's job security in this. Like these environmental problems are not going to get solved. So uh, I actually thought that at the time, like there's going to be a need for this profession. In a way, it's turned out to be true, although, you know, I, who could imagine how politicized it would all get. And uh, but um, anyway, that's that happened. Yeah, and that's an, and I want to I want to I want you to kind of um, build on that that point you made because you said uh, it's probably a little less a little easier to have gotten into MIT with meteorology than physics, um, but however, it's a relative easy because you also mentioned that meteorology and study of the atmosphere is steeped in fluid dynamics, thermodynamics, and so forth. Uh, one of the things I find often when students come to our program at the University of Georgia is they love weather and they love tornadoes and storm chasing and clouds. But then they're kind of, I hit them with this, with how do you like physics and calculus and fluid dynamics and differential equations? Talk right. a little bit about just how steep the atmospheric sciences are in sort of the math and physics. Well, it's interesting because it's in a way it's changing a lot now. I mean, I'll answer the question that you asked, but, yeah, just, but, to, sort of but just to take a detour, I think it's changing now in the sense that um, the field has broadened a lot. And I think people who study climate, because our department's a little different than yours. I think you guys have a little bit more of the weather geeks. We're pretty much of a climate place. Well, we, we are actually, we're a little bit of a hybrid of both at Georgia, and we have probably more climate than most. But I'd say my department that I came out of at Florida State is definitely just more weather. Right. So, yeah, I don't, yeah. So, but our, I see more students who are coming out of climate. We don't really have so much of the, of the weather types and they, and climate, you know, has really broadened where, you know, chemistry and biology is a big part of it. A lot of it is very statistical now. So a lot of the kids are really into machine learning. They still have to learn some physics, but I feel like the physics isn't as heavy for all of them now as it was in the past. I mean, the ones who are doing atmospheric dynamics, which is what, you know, you and I do, it still is, but, but, um, but at least historically, yes, what you say is absolutely true. I mean, in terms of the material itself, if you're studying how the atmosphere works, the core of it, the dynamical meteorology, that's sort of what made it into a modern discipline in the post-war period with the advent of you know, uh, a numerical weather prediction, that's really, properly speaking, it's a branch of uh, applied physics or applied mathematics. It's sort of a weird thing that it it split off at some period pretty early on. You know, there's a weird culture in physics departments it's historic excuse me historically i think it's changing now but where historically physics departments in the united states didn't really teach in depth what was considered classical physics you know fluid dynamics the basic equations were known in the 19th century or earlier and so that was like kind of just solving them was kind of boring and it, and it went to engineering and applied math and the physicists were interested in you know um, quantum gravity and, you know, cosmology, sort of things where you're discovering the laws of nature. I think Einstein said at some point, or some one of those guys said, you know, physics is about discovering the laws of nature and just figuring out the implications of the laws of nature is, you know, for a sort of other low lives. And so, so it's sort of a cultural strange thing where, where the f fluids and, and, um, and meteorology and physical oceanography became a separate 
thing. But in terms of uh, what you actually have to know to do it, it really is physics and, and applied math. Yeah, I, I agree. Now let's let's pivot a little bit discussion as we are taping this uh, uh, on Wednesday morning uh, you know, here in late May. We just had the second named storm of the season form, Bertha. Yeah. Um, and it may impact the historical launch there at Kennedy Space Center of two astronauts launching from U.S. soil. But this is a nice segue into the fact that you study tropical meteorology and hurricanes. Uh, and a question that you know, one of my producers wanted me to ask is, does our lack of understanding of weather occurring in the tropics affect our ability to forecast tropical cyclones? Now, we're pretty good with track forecasts, relatively speaking. Our intensity forecasts are pretty um, uh, lagging, I would say, track forecasts. But what is your thought about the overall understanding of tropical meteorology, particularly as it relates to tropical cyclones at this point in time? It's interesting because there's sort of two different questions in there. I mean, one question is, how well do we understand it? That's the one you just asked. But the other part of the question is, does it, does it affect prediction? In other words, there's a question you could ask is like, do you really need to understand to predict or do you just need to be able to build models? Because the models are like, you know, the models can do things that surprise you. You know, the model is almost as complicated as the real world. So we can be in a situation. And I think we often are in this situation today where the models are better than our understanding. In other words, the model can do something right, and we don't know why it did it right. And that's historically not how it was, right? Historically, modern weather prediction was like the understanding and the, and the model development went together. And like with El Nino, the first models of El Nino, you know, were built because people understood El Nino. Mark Caney, Steve Zbeck, you had a, you know, how to put together the right model. But the models today are so complicated that they have these sort of emergent properties. So I think on the one hand, I think both have improved a lot. So the models are way better than they used to be. You know, the, the, the Hurricane Center now predicts tropical cyclogenesis at five days lead time. Like, I mean, I think if they wanted to, they could probably go to seven with a little bit of skill. But that was, unthink I mean, think about 20 years ago, I mean, let alone 30 or more, you know, how, could you, you imagine? I mean, it's just incredible that the models can do that. And, and, the, and not only can the models do it, but they do it well enough that the Hurricane Center, the, the forecasters who are pretty conservative are willing to, you know, to put out a forecast of Genesis. So I think the models are, are way better um, at predicting tropical weather. They have a long way to go still probably to be as good as they can be. But, but the other, but, but I think the understanding has, it's lagged a little bit. On the other hand, it, I do think it's a lot better than it was when I started. So I started working on tropical meteorology just a little over 20 years ago. And um, we used to say, you know, at that time it was still like a, there was a period in like from the, you know, the forties through the almost the nineties where like mid latitude meteorology really developed, you know, in the post-war period and became so successful. The weather forecast got so good and tropical meteorology was kind of a back backwater. You know, it was like the theories weren't, there wasn't really the theoretical understanding. The models weren't that good. And it was kind of dominated by an empirical kind of thinking you know, very, very, stay very close to the data. And there was kind of a distrust of, of anything that looked like what a physicist would call attempts at understanding. But I think that's changed a lot. I think it's changed partly because the models have gotten so much better. So that gives us the ability to test things and, 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 and try things. Because um, you can take a model, you can turn things on and off and see what makes it tick. And, and observations have gotten better. But also, I think the climate problem, because our field, the climate problem has loomed so large that... And the climate problem, the tropics and the latitudes are sort of not as different in a way. I mean, of course, the physics is still a little bit different, but 
you know, it's this people are using the same models and the same techniques. And I think it's broken down some of the the divides in the field between the tropical people and the not tropical people. So anyway, it's a long winded answer, but um, I, no, I think I, things have improved, but we, there's still, of course, a lot of ways we could. Yeah, I think they're absolutely. And I, I, I don't know that I would have answered that question any differently, but just kind of digging a little deeper on sort of improved in understanding. I mean, what do you think we need? I mean, are, are there observations that we're missing a, a deep ocean heat content or a higher resolution near surface winds over the ocean or I mean what what is it that if you could sort of snap your magic wand and sort of create a new observation or capability what is it that we're missing in tropical meteorology that can kind of move the needle even further I think the best thing would be really good observations of water vapor everywhere in the atmosphere with good vertical resolution so right now we have um, radio sons, very spotty, you know, the tropics is mostly ocean and very few radio sons. Satellites, the infrared satellites have vertic some vertical resolution, the best ones, but they don't see everywhere and they can't see through clouds. The microwave gives you just the column. There's GPS, but that's also has its limitations. So, and, and we're coming to realize, I think more and more that the water vapor field has a lot of control over what happens in the tropics small variations in water vapor um have a big impact on convection and i think that's one of been one of the big advances in my time in the field is that we've come to understand that so that would be my first choice i don't know how to do it you know i don't know what technology is that's going to do it but um you know i'm sure there's other things other people could think of that said i'm not entirely sure that um the limitation on our understanding is fundamentally the observations although I shouldn't say it because maybe if we had much better observations, you know, something would, we'd see something that we're not seeing now, but and so, so there's also just like inspiration and, and, you know, insight can come from other, you know, even with the same observations, we might be able to improve understanding, but certainly more would be better. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Adam Sobel from Columbia University. And let me give you a little background on Adam Sobel, one of the world's top experts on what I would consider tropical dynamics, tropical meteorology, and so forth, and climate as well. Um, he's a professor at Columbia University in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences, professor of ocean and climate physics, applied physics and mathematics, and also has an affiliation with the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory as well. He leads the Columbia University Initiative on Extreme Weather and Climate, and as you heard, he received his PhD from MIT in 1998. I believe, Adam, if I have this correctly, you also are currently serving on the AMS Council. Is that right? No, I rotated off this okay. year. Okay. I, I finished my term. Yeah, he has served served the broader weather community as a, a member of the American Meteorological Society's uh, AMS Council, which is the governing body of, of the AMS. So thank you for your service there as a former AMS president. <laughs> so you tell, tell us a little bit before we dive back into the weather geekery and geek out. Tell us a little bit about your program at Columbia 
for those that may not be familiar with it and want to know a little bit more about it? Oh, yeah. Um, let's see. I should do a good job of this for the purpose of advertising, <laughs> but um, it's complicated. So we, so yeah, I'm in two departments, as you mentioned. It's sort of a historical accident of how I was hired. But um, so for those who want to study atmospheric sciences uh, or climate at Columbia, the the department that has the most of it is called Earth and Environmental Sciences, and that's in the College of Arts and Sciences. Um, and it's the research um, presence of that department is mostly at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory, which is a separate campus that Columbia has for the Earth Sciences. It's um, so the main campus, the Morningside campus, is in New York City, in Manhattan, on the Upper West Side, Harlem, and the. Lamont campus is on the other side of the Hudson River. So you go across the George Washington Bridge to Jersey, go north. When you just cross back into New York State, that's where it is. The beautiful piece of land um, and uh, looking over the Hudson River. And we have all the earth sciences there, including atmosphere, ocean, climate. So there's a lot that goes on there. But I'm also in the Department of Applied Physics and Applied Mathematics, which is in the engineering school on the main campus. And we also have um, atmospheric science research there. Not only me, but several colleagues uh, as well, and graduate students, and um, also some atmospheric and climate research going on in other departments of the university, uh, including earth and environmental engineering in the engineering school and chemical engineering. We have one atmospheric um, chemist, uh, Faye McNeil, in the chemical engineering. So, and, and the reason it's sort of spread out in this way is in part that Columbia has something called the Earth Institute, which was about, I don't know, 25 years ago or something, they decided to create this overarching entity called the Earth Institute that would take in all the earth and environment related activities in the university, including climate. But how they decided to do it was a little unusual. So rather than make a school of the environment, um, they made this umbrella entity that all the units of the university that do anything in this space, including social sciences and law, anything that's environment, climate, sustainability related, all falls under the Earth Institute. So that, that decision sort of allowed climate to spread out through different parts of the university. What's happening now, so and just to finish, so we have a great program. If you wanna study um, atmospheric science, physical oceanography, climate science, or any of the things that's connected to in policy, uh, law, public health, you know, this is a great place to do it. We have a lot of different programs. Um, our Earth Science PhD program a few years ago is rated number one, the way we read it by the uh, National Academy. But what's happening now, and this is really just underway now, is that our president, President Lee Bollinger of Columbia University, has decided that we should create a school of climate. Oh, wow. That's so there's going to be a school. It's going to be a school. Like, you know, you have law, journalism, business, medicine, arts and sciences, engineering, climate. That's going to be a school. Wow. The details of it are still sort of coming into place. It may be sort of a school that still is somehow, you know, um, has joint appointments with all the other schools. And, um, you know, it has, doesn't exist yet, but that's a big, a big thing that's going to happen. And we're excited about it. That, that's, that actually really is some breaking news, even, even to me, is sort of close to the field and knows what's going on. I, I think that's going to be a pretty provocative move. Columbia, and I think an attractive one too for a lot of people studying climate. And also, I should mention we had we interviewed Gavin Schmidt recently for another episode, and I know that their NASA GIS is there in New York. And oh I'm, yeah, I'm right? sorry, I, I should have mentioned them. Um, thank you, because that's very important. So since the '60s, when it was created, the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, which is in um, 
uh, a building just upstairs from Tom's Diner. If you've ever seen Seinfeld, yes. it's the exterior of that. There's a climate, NASA climate modeling lab upstairs, uh, climate modeling and remote sensing uh, lab upstairs from that, which is just a couple blocks from Columbia's main campus. And they have a very strong atmospheric science presence historically, closely affiliated with the university, graduate students work there. So that's another thing that makes our program sort of even more delocalized, but also makes it bigger and stronger. We have, they have one of the three um, U.S. climate models that's in the IPCC, for example. So we're one of the only universities that has a sort of in-house um, climate model development effort, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, just as a little props to to the Columbia and the Lamont Darty, I don't know exactly where it lives, but when I first came to the University of Georgia over 50, about 15 years ago, I wrote a little proposal to teach climate modeling in an intro capacity actually in an intro weather and climate class and i was using something called the edgcm oh yeah model yeah <laughs> i know it has some roots there and i'm pretty sure it's still around so if you want to kind of learn climate models or learn about them with all the without all of the perhaps complexity that goes into them uh google and sort of search that edgcm model because there's a lot of misunderstanding adam and i both deal with in the climate world that we operate in. There's a lot of misunderstanding about climate models, their efficacy, how they compare to weather models. Oh, you can't predict weather beyond 14 days. So how do we trust climate model type of things that we hear? So right. yeah, so you're familiar with that model. Yeah, I, it's something they developed as a great thing. It's the idea is that you can run the model um, without knowing too much about it. You could, at the time, it was for Windows machines. I, I think it's still going on. I haven't checked it in a while, but it's, yeah, they made it so that anybody, you know, a high school student or whoever can run a can run a climate model. Yeah, I, th I think it's just a neat sort of thing because I think I find there, as you probably do as well, a lot of the misunderstanding and even some contrarianism and skepticism regarding climate is just people are not familiar with some of the aspects of climate because frankly, in a lot of the meteorology programs like I came out of Florida State, you basically take one climate course, an overview climatology course there. You really don't get into sort of the paleoclimate, climate modeling and the, the sort of or system science uh, connections. But I want to shift gears now because I know a lot of your research and a lot of work and things that you are known for within the field have been related to precipitation and precipitation variability on multiple time scales. Uh, and your team uses models of varying complexity. Just give us an overall summary of some of your broad research portfolio over the years and what you're really focusing the most on these days. Thanks. Yeah. Um, for a lot of years, including to the present, you're absolutely right. A lot of what I worked on was the basic uh, dynamics of tropical precipitation um, as a, as a multi-scale problem. So the clouds that produce rain are relatively small scale, you know, meters to kilometers to maybe the biggest convective systems are tens or hundreds of kilometers, but, you know, small compared to what climate models can resolve. And then the weather systems that contain those clouds can be much larger, thousands of kilometers or even more um, with, with planetary scale systems like the so-called Madden-Julian oscillation that I've, I've worked a lot on. So the problem is to understand how these very large weather systems are interacting with the clouds, which are much smaller, and which is controlling which, and how are they telling each other what to do. In the middle latitudes, we sort of understand how this works a lot better because you have the jet stream and it's um, uh, baroclinically unstable to use a technical term. So it, it well, forms the technical terms on weather geeks. <laughs> love technical terms, yeah. So the, so the jet stream is unstable and it forms these you know weather systems, the high and low pressure systems of the middle latitudes, and those sort of 
push the water vapor around and tell the clouds and rain where to form. But in the tropics, you don't have those weather systems. You don't have the baroclinically unstable jet. So you have a very gentle, um, you know, the temperature field that has no fronts in it. It's sort of flat. The temperature is kind of the same everywhere. That's been a fact that I've used a lot in, in my research at a given altitude. I mean, the temperature map is very flat. And um, so what decides where the clouds and rain form is much more subtle and everything sort of happens at the same time in the tropics. In other words, the the, the, the vertical motion, the, the water vapor field, the clouds, the rain are all tightly coupled and figuring out what caused what. The winds, everything's tightly coupled. To figure out what caused what is very difficult. So I've been trying to understand systems like the Madden-Julian Oscillation or MJO, um, easterly waves and tropical depression types of systems, monsoons, both how, how they work and then over the years a little bit more how they're related to larger scale climate phenomena, including natural ones like El Nino, but also, uh, of course, human-induced global warming. In recent years, so, so that's going on, and that's, that's like a basic, you know, problem in applied physics. Um, and we use different kinds of models, we use observations, and we try to understand how things work. And I would have said, if you'd asked me five, ten years ago, I would have said, that's, that's what I do. I'm sort of studying the basic science of tropical weather and climate. In the last decade, or maybe a little less, um, my, uh, close associates and I have developed a more applied dimension where got interested, especially after hurricane Sandy, which kind of changed my life, um, in 2012, uh, got more interested in an applied problem of hurricane of, of extreme weather risk. In other words, trying to do something that's more directly useful to people. And the direction that has led now is, um, uh, we've developed a model, um, a statistical dynamical model for hurricane hazard. This is inspired by Carrie Emanuel's work in the early 2000s. Um, but the idea is to, to try to say, um, what's the probability of a hurricane of a given intensity in a given place, even if the historical data records aren't long enough to categorize the rare event. So this is a, well, this whole concept grew out of the insurance industry. I mean, that's where, um, that they were doing it before Emmanuel was, but he, um, he brought some of his own, you know, science into it. And he's the one that, in, from whom I learned about this problem. And so we've been doing that. We've actually been working with people in the reinsurance industry and others. And, and that's, um, that's been quite interesting. Um, because it's really a, a, sort of a different problem. In other words, trying to understand how things work is one thing, but trying to tell somebody, <clears throat> You know, the, trying to characterize the risk for somebody who actually has to make a decision is sort of a different problem. And, and I found it useful, even as a, <clears throat> excuse me. Sure, no problem. Even from the point of view of basic science, I found it useful to, to work with users, in air quotes. I mean, somebody who really wants the answer. Somebody comes to you from outside and says, can you tell me this about hurricanes? You say, well, gee, no, not really, but maybe we could. And you, you sort of get new ideas from working in the applied space. So on the one hand, it's, it's good to feel like our work is valuable and, and, and being used by someone. And it was really, um, as I said, that experience of Hurricane Sandy that brought home to me how much people really do care about what we do. I sort of would write it in our grant proposals before that, but you know, I experienced it more firsthand then. Exactly. But actually working with people who do want the information is, is it's not just, doesn't just give you a warm, fuzzy feeling from that you're doing something useful, but it also, is stimulating. I mean, you get you get new uh, problems to think about, new ideas from that.
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. I'm talking with my colleague, Dr. Adam Sobel from Columbia University about all things tropical. Uh, he's a professor, an author, an atmospheric modeler extraordinaire is what my producers wrote on my notes. And all of that's true. Now, you know, I've worked most closely with Adam uh, when we both served on a National Academy's uh, study. And I, I feel it might be one of the most definitive looks at what we call extreme weather attribution and climate change. From your lens as a member of that committee, talk about where you think we are, even since that report on our ability to attribute extreme weather, hurricanes, floods, heat waves, fires to climate change. Um, that's a good question. I have to admit, I mean, I, I haven't followed the scientific literature, uh, you know, super closely. My sense is that... Um, I don't want to say there haven't been advances. I, I think there have been, but I think that if you read that report today, it's about four years later. I think in the big picture, it still captures where things are. Um, you know, in terms of we rank different events of how well they can be attributed. Um, I think some of the changes have been that some of those, you know, we said heat waves are the easiest one to attribute. Tornadoes are really hard. Hurricanes are somewhere in between. I think I think the changes that people have started to do more on those hard ones. You know, there started to be some attempts. There have been some hurricane attribution studies of different um, types, and people are moving closer to doing some other types of events. And some of the other ones have become more confident. I think the thing that's interesting about attribution is how it is used in the public sphere. I mean, in that report, you know, we were only charged to address the science. Our charge was like, how well can we do this? What kind of statements can we defend? We weren't asked why to do it, you know, or how to use the information. But I think its main use is in the media. In other words, we said things about how people use it for climate adaptation and this and that. And I don't want to say it's not useful, but I I think attributing a single event, you know, if you're doing climate adaptation, you want to know this that's going forward. You want to know what's the probability of a given kind of event. A single event that just happened shouldn't really change your view that much of the future. So I think where it's really been used, it, it, and maybe this was the original motivation for it, is in the media. In other words, the, 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 the um, a big extreme event happens. The reporters are asking, was this climate change? They're going to call scientists like you and me. And we, we, attribution scientist was created by some of our colleagues, you know, 10, 15 years ago, because they wanted to be able to answer those questions responsibly. And I think that's fine. I think it's fine to do science that's motivated by, by the media, as long as we do it responsibly. So, and I, I think that it's been effective in changing public opinion a little bit, actually. I mean, I think that it, it's hard to say, I mean, I can't do attribution on public opinion, but like, you know, the, even though we still have a, you know, a president and a, and a governing party in the United States that that's in denial about it. I, you know, I do think most of the public um, accepts the science on climate. And I think part of, and not only accepts it, but takes it more seriously. I mean, you have these young kids who are protesting, right? That it's the number one thing for these amazing young kids in the Sunrise Movement and, and, and Greta and all of that. 
you know, that didn't exist a few years ago. I think part of that is them having seen these attribution studies in the newspaper and, you know, that, that, that's brought it home. So I don't know that when I think about attribution now, that's kind of what I think about is, is, is how the science is connected to the, to the political process. No, I, I think you're right about this whole communication sort of motivation. And one of the things we did, one of the key results out of their report is we tried to educate people on how to talk about these events. Stop asking the question, was that Sandy caused by climate change and sort of right, right. in terms of uh, frequency intensity becoming more likely, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what do you say to critics that I, and I've heard this, that say, well, why do, we, why do you need to turn around an attribution study in two months? Why do we need this so-called rapid attribution? What, right. How do you answer that? And I'm curious how you answer it because I get the question too. I think the honest answer is because that's when there's interest in it. You know, I mean, the, I think if you accept that these, um, studies are being done, you know, with an aim towards communicating with the public, that's when the reporters are calling. It's not just two months, it's two days. Yes. You know, and the science, you know, the the science, I mean, you asked how much is the science advanced? I mean, people are always doing new things, but for a lot of these types of events, the science hasn't changed, doesn't change that quickly. And so once you've done one event and you've published a paper on it, you can do the next one, you know, just like you don't, we don't, we don't peer review weather forecasts, right? We set up the model. Um, you may peer review the model, you know, aspects of it when it's developed, but then you issue a bunch of forecasts, you test it out. And then, you know, each new forecast, you just put it out. And attribution studies can be the same way. Once you've done a bunch of them and you peer reviewed the methodology. So I actually think that rapid attribution is fine. Um, and I think that's the motivation is to get it out there. I think, you know, the other thing is that a lot of times, if you read the attribution studies, you know, properly, they're often much more conservative than some of the reporters want them to be. In other words, the people think that the attribution studies are making every, everybody freak out. Actually, a lot of times the attribution studies are saying, well, we couldn't really see too strong of a signal. I mean, how the, how given, you know, some media outlets may want to give a strong conclusion about the role of climate change, but actually I, I think, if anything, I mean, the attribution studies, they, on the one hand, they do sort of support more media interests in, in this question of how did climate change influence this given event. On the other hand, they often, um, if they're done carefully, they're often, um, you know, the, con- the conclusions can be more conservative than, uh, than uh, some reporters might um, want them to be. So I think, you know, just the fact that people are doing attribution studies shouldn't be seen as an inherently um political act although it of course science is done by humans and and we have all the motivations that human beings have yeah i have often said adam that i think a lot of times climate scientists are a bit more conservative and less alarm sounding than perhaps we should have been and what i mean by that is typically Mm -hmm. by our training are careful and objective and don't want to make big broad sweeping statements even though uh some sides of the climate discussion accuse climate scientists of being alarmists and doing it and i've actually found that we probably have been too muted in the sense because of our nature as scientists we want to be careful i want to kind of we got to start drawing to a close here but i I remember, and I don't know if you still do this, but don't you yourself have a podcast? Yeah, I just started it. Thank you for letting me advertise it. Yeah, we just start. We just started it um, a little while ago. Um, it's a. Uh, um, it's called Deep Convection. It's a little bit like this, Marshall, in the sense that it's two 
scientists talking, although it's a bit more um, long form and uh, and uh, I don't want to say unprofessional, a little bit, more, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a bit more about people's lives and careers and sort of sure, and sure. political questions. It's a little bit less um, science, uh, you know, it's not whether it's not about it's not weather geeks weather geeks wouldn't be the right name for it right but um but we've had uh it's with other scientists and we sort of produced it slowly put out one every two weeks where the first season is 10 it's an effort um i've done collaboratively with my former phd student melanie bielli who's now a postdoc at caltech um i want to give her credit although she um um well she'll be a guest on it at, in, in the last episode of this uh season which will be in a few weeks so yeah, that's been fun. It's it's not um, it's totally uh, uh, vanity project. I mean, it's not backed by anybody. We're just doing it for kicks, but uh, but it's been really fun doing it, and we've got some positive responses from our small audience. No, that's that's great. I mean, like I said, you know, we did Weather Geeks as a television show for almost I think four or five years, maybe four years or so, and then you know, just the shifting way that people consume information. People consume information in this format, streaming and podcasts and so forth. So, I mean, we had enough of a brand out there with Weather Geeks that we wanted to kind of keep it going and reach broader audiences and younger audiences, frankly, too. And I think we've done that. So, I, I think podcasts and what you're doing, we need more of the science community, people that know the information to help communicate it. So I really appreciate what you're doing. Where can people find it? Right. It's, um, let me make sure I get this right. It's, it's called deep convection. So if you Google deep convection podcast, you'll find it, but let me give the, it's deep hyphen convection.org. So D E E P D E E P hyphen C O N V E C T I O N.org. Hey, Weather Geeks, hope to all the weather, weather Geeks listeners will uh, check out his podcast. Also, where can people find you in social media or any relevant websites you want to point them to? Um, I think the only thing that I'm really active on now is Twitter, where I'm at Prof Adam Sobel, um, which is actually uh, to distinguish myself from the two Chef Adam Sobels. It's kind of confusing, but there's actually two sort of famous chefs with my name. But anyway, yeah, Prof Adam Sobel on Twitter. Um, that's I, I'm not even on Twitter. I'm not super active, but I do um, I do uh, post things, especially when there's uh, storms happening like now in the, um, not only the Atlantic but the Indian Ocean has been very active. So I put some stuff about that. Uh, I have a professional um, Columbia website if anybody's interested in our programs or my research. Um, it's too long to say, but if you just Google me, if you can remember my name, Adam Sobel, S O B E L, um, I think I come up higher on the Google ranking than the two chefs, although. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that, I think you. But, but you can figure out which one is the meteorologist anyway. <laughs> I think they'll figure it out eventually. <laughs> well, we've got to end it here, but before we do, it is that time of our podcast where we do our Geek of the Week. We highlight a scientist, superstar, great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. And this week, we're happy to highlight Laura Elan, who's a senior cybersecurity manager. With her mother growing up on a farm and her dad working in aviation, Laura learned at an early age the important role weather plays for those working on land and in the skies. It was this fascination and respect for weather that drove her passion for it today. To this day, she watches the Weather Channel every day and is a proud weather nerd, or we like to say weather geek. If you would like to nominate a Geek of the Week, be sure to check out our social media pages for links to apply. Adam, thank you so much for joining us on this Weather Geeks podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, Marshall. Absolutely. And to all of you listening out there, stay safe, and we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia.